Hello to all my JD and the Straight Shot fans. It's a beautiful anonymous. One hour, one phone call, no names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one on one. I think it'll be more fun, and I'll get to know you, and you'll get to know me. What an exciting week for me as the host of this show. You guys have been so nice. I'm seeing so much enthusiasm for the beautiful Anonymous convention happening May 14th through 17th in Brooklyn, New York. Saw somebody tweeted they're flying in from Australia for it. That blows my mind. I hope the shows are good. Justify that trip. I think we're going to have a blast, man. I can feel the enthusiasm. I see a lot of people saying, I'd love to come, but uh, this, I listen to this show and it's kind of my secret and I'd have to come alone. I say... Let's get hundreds of people who come alone in the same room together, and then we are no longer alone. I would love that. Beautifulcononymous.com. Checking out info in the Facebook group. Also want to give a shout-out to the guy I took a jujitsu class this week with a guy who told me, he, he was like, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I actually just listened to the jujitsu episode. This is my sixth jujitsu class, and we wrestled each other, and I'm not going to... It's a faux pas to say who tapped who, but I'm going to say... Uh, Thank you for, uh, it's, I think I'm probably the only podcast host, maybe, I don't know, there's other podcast hosts who, maybe one that doesn't focus on fighting, who's actually fought a listener. Interesting stuff. Okay, this week's episode, Baltimore is such a cool city. That's the basic premise of this episode. This one I, I love because it's kind of casual, and we just talk about an American city that's really fascinating. I think everybody kind of knows that Baltimore is a city that in a lot of ways has struggled in, in recent decades. And that's become a thing in pop culture. And we have somebody who lives there and loves it, tells us so much about it. And it's just like a nice, simple slice of life from Baltimore. Then at the end, we learn that this person really also has all these sides to their personal life that they've had to sort out and figure out for themselves and how they define themselves. And it just takes this turn that's really unexpected and beautiful. Enjoy it. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello? Oh my God, is this Chris? This is Chris, hello. Oh man, oh man, oh man, this is wild. How are you doing today? How am I doing today? I'll be honest with you. My son decided it was a good idea to wake up at 5.15 a.m., it's a little out of character. We, oh. We've gotten past this, and he wanted to play. And I wanted his mom uh. to sleep because she has to work harder than I do because of breastfeeding. So the way he wanted yeah. to play was I lay on the floor, and he jumps on me, crawls across the room, and jumps on me, aiming either for my throat or my testicles in a way that felt to me like him <laughs> trying to claim dominance. And then I managed to get him to fall asleep, but I was scared to move him because I didn't want to wake him up. So I slept for 90 more minutes on a hardwood floor. That's how I'm doing. How are you oh, doing? I bet, that, I, bet that, I bet that felt great on the back. <laughs> Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm doing pretty good. I just got off of work not too long ago. One of my gigs right now is packing like tea for a company. And I'm from Baltimore. Um, that should, that's not a big detail. Um, but, and I was taking, like, when I got through, I was like, oh shit, I need to like leave because I have flexible hours. So I was like, I need to leave. I need to get this part of like packages down to the dock. And so as I was like getting it off of the freight elevator, one of the wheels got stuck in the gap. 
between the elevator and like the floor. And then like the door started to come down and I was worried I was going to die, but, um, I didn't die. So yeah, overall I'm pretty good. Um, question for you about the kid. Yeah. Um, cause my, I'm a new uncle nice. within like the past few months. Yeah. And that child is so mobile and he doesn't crawl yet, but I feel like when he starts crawling, we're screwed. So like in your experience, when your son started crawling, was it like DEFCON 5? Well, it was like really exciting. He started, I mean, he's been army scooching for a couple months now, but that's pretty slow. And it's really visible. The thing with crawling is it's fast. It's faster than I knew. So I was super excited. <laughs> he started crawling maybe 10 days ago. But the wild thing is that now it's all moving really fast. Like he's only been crawling for less than two weeks. And just this morning, he managed to grab the little bars on his, uh, you know, we've built one of these cages in our living room so he can't crawl around and get under the couch or chew on a wire and die. And just this morning, he managed to grab those bars and stand up on his own. And it's like, you just started crawling 10 days ago. Now you can stand? This is nuts. Oh, no. So it's a lot oh, to think about. No. I also just want to say, I'm sitting here com complaining because my, um, my beautiful son woke up at 5.15. And then you followed up with a story where you're working in some sort of warehouse where you're almost killed by a door trying to get tea down to the docks. And it reminds me... <laughs> That uh, we all got our own problems, but that my problems are pretty good. So I thank you for that reminder. Oh, well, okay. Let me be clear. I was being extremely dramatic. I could not actually be killed by that freight, by, by, that, by that door. Um, at most, I think it would have bonked me and then like gone, gone its way back up. I, I was not at no risk of death. My life, it's not a, that, that is not a big problem. That is not a like, I have some problems in my life. That's not a problem in my life. But you're still telling um, me, like, it's 12.45 p.m. on the East Coast, and you're getting off of work, and you're, and you're hoisting boxes down to the docks. Which I have to tell you, I've always been obsessed with the docks and longshoremen. I think oh, it's a oh, I badass. I misled. I misled you. I'm so sorry. I don't mean, like, I meant the loading dock. I don't mean, like, uh, like... Brando on the waterfront docks. I'm not unionizing anybody. I like, thought this was like the wire season two. Like you're down there in Baltimore, uh, down in one of those uh, longshoremen situations. Okay, the loading docks. Okay, uh, still impressed, nah, but I love listen. Baltimore, I, listen, I'm born and raised Baltimore, and I love it very much. But because um, I'm white, like all white, and but there is a part of me that's like, you know, like I'm from Baltimore. I've been here pretty much my whole life, excepting w one year and one summer. And I love it. But at the same time, it, it's not the problems of the city were not my problems growing up. So I feel tentative really to like claim it as my city because I'm not from like a wealthy background or anything. But, you know, like my parents worked hard. They really, my mom and dad were really like, they were very passionate about making sure me and my siblings had opportunities for ourselves that maybe they didn't have growing up. So like they worked hard. They sent us to a private Catholic school, which as you know, I'm sure, you know, being raised Catholic, 
you know, that presents its own problems, but overall very good. And so, like, I love Baltimore, but um, I always feel like, to dis- like I need to disclaim that because so much, I believe you've been to Baltimore, like, I feel like you yes. know stuff about Yeah. The auto and bar, the auto bar in Baltimore. I love the auto bar le- so fucking much. Legitimately, my it might be my favorite venue I've ever performed in. We did a live taping there once, and that's where I talked to the uh, Australian, my Australian best the friend. Australian. Yeah, and that's one of the yeah. best episodes I, we've uh, ever done. I've done stand up there twice. That is probably my favorite venue to perform at in the country. It's such a great venue. I wanted to. Go the last time you were there. I wanted to go, but I couldn't because I I'm an actor and poet, and that's an incredibly uh, pretentious sentence. But <laughs> I <laughs> um, I had rehearsal that night, so I couldn't go. But um, it's such an amazing venue. Like the vibe of it. I also like write songs and shit. So like I've I've actually played there, like opening for people, and it's such. Even though, like, when you're an opener, nobody gives a fuck about you. It's still just, like, it's such a great stage. It's great energy. The mm-hmm. people there are dope. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, I also, I want to say, too, you, you said a sentence that I think might be jarring to some listeners where you were like, I'm very white and Baltimore's problems aren't mine. But I know what you mean. I feel like just on its face value, that might be a, a sentence that jars people. But one thing I've learned about your city that that's so eye-opening and um, heartbreaking because, you know, we've all seen The Wire. Everybody's seen The Wire. Um, but that's, at the end of the day, even though it's like the best TV show ever and known for being so realistic, it's still a TV show. One thing I've learned is, you know, when you're a comedian, you rely on Waze, which is the app that gives you directions that account for traffic and road closures and accidents. So it's the quickest way. But I have learned uh, in my trips to Baltimore that, it's 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 tough to follow ways because it prioritizes the quickest way, but that means it routinely brings you through neighborhoods where it is no, I am not joking when I say you'll drive four or five entire city blocks where every single window is boarded up on every business and every home. And that yeah. that's not an isolated thing. There are many stretches like that. And then, even more jarring is sometimes you'll go three blocks where everything's boarded up and then you're halfway down the next block and you see just one house where everything is swept up and there's a flower box in the window and you realize, oh, someone's living in the middle of of this, what's effectively a desert. We don't have access to anything. And uh, it is eye-opening and heartbreaking. And then you think, oh, this is a major... American city in the Northeast Corridor. You know, you can look at it. There's a lot of studies that say you can really think of the whole stretch from Boston to Washington, D.C. as effectively one massive culturally connected metropolitan area. And Baltimore is a big hub in that. And it still has that. So I just want to say I know what you mean. And, you know, I think the, uh, the minority communities in Baltimore have have seen and dealt with a lot over a number of generations. So I just want to say, I, I hear you and I've seen it myself just in passing and it must, it must be so layered to be a citizen of your city. Yeah. And I mean, cause it's like Baltimore, 
I say this somewhat hypocritically as because I'm doing everything I can to like move, not because I don't love Baltimore, but just because I need changes in my life. Yeah, I mean, I love it. And when I say, I just want to be clear, I love Baltimore, and it breaks my heart. Just the problems that, like, exist in the city and, like, within, like, the government. You know, like, two of our most recent mayors, you know, have, like, these, like, ridiculous corruption scandals. And it, and it's hard because I feel like people have this person. I remember, speaking of Autobar, I remember one time, this is back when I was in high school, I think, like, 2010, I went to see one of my favorite uh, musicians, Langhorn Slim, at the Auto Bar. And opening, he had two openers, and the very first opener was this dude from Ireland. I can't remember his name. But he, like, made some joke where it was like, he was like, oh, when I told, oh, I can't do an Irish accent. <laughs> but, like, he's like, when I told, he was like, when I told my parents that I was, uh, when I was playing in Baltimore, they were like, oh, like, like the wire. And he was like, yeah. And they were just like, oh, well, don't get shot. And like, it's such a common perception, I feel like, um, from outside, not even like just outside, like the state, but outside the city. Because I went to like high school, again, like a private Catholic school that was in Baltimore County. And people there like love to, like, make jokes about Baltimore, you know? And keep in mind, it's, like, majority privilege talking, like, white boys from Howard County or Baltimore County that live in, like, these huge-ass houses that only go into the city, like, to go to the Ravens game or the Orioles game or the Aquarium. And it pisses me off because it's obviously, like, the numbers are the numbers and, like, like, there is a lot of crime and, like, shit that goes down but people from baltimore i think are some of the most genuine upfront honest people i've ever met in my life like we don't really bullshit we don't hide our feelings or you know and like but at the same time we're also like i feel like we look out for each other and you sort of like know each other and respect each other so it's just that I think that's like one of my biggest like things that hurts is it's just like there's this perception of Baltimore is like a fucking war zone by not just people outside of Maryland, but outside of Baltimore. And the fact of the matter is people are here. Good people. I was with all places and all cities have like crime problems. And I don't know. It's just, sorry. I went off on a real path. No. I'm glad to hear because I agree. Because I'll tell you, I started going there and uh, doing shows. And I'd passed through Baltimore before. Um, but like on class trips to the aquarium, which is a great aquarium, by the way. And they got this shark spiral where you walk down in a spiral and you see bigger and bigger sharks. Right? It's amazing. Amazing the aquarium. There. Oh, yeah. And on the roof, they got a sloth in a in a uh, yeah. like a greenhouse. It's, it's cool. A great aquarium. But... Yeah. The octopus there and I are like best friends. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. But I was going to say, um, when I started going there and doing shows, it is such an art supportive city. It quietly, I feel like, you know, Brooklyn had all this artistic buzz and then a lot of the artists started really bubbling up in Philly. 
And when I got to Baltimore, I was like, oh, this is still very under the radar, but there's a lot of good music, a lot of good comedy. There's great restaurants. I have a friend named Bambi Galore there, and I know there's a big drag scene via Bambi uh, yeah. is how I know that. And I've just also seen that side of it where there's a lot of stuff kind of, uh, there's a lot of energy and electricity crackling under the surface. I've stayed at a place in Baltimore called Feed the Scene where they have a whole house full of bunk beds for bands and touring artists to just come crash. It's a very cool place. And I'll tell you this, here's high praise. Being someone who's lived in New York for 15 years, we all know New Yorkers are incredibly arrogant. We like to say that we live in the greatest city <laughs> in the world. I think, and as an East Coaster, we all know that you're sitting, you've definitely said the sentence, fuck New York in your life, living in another Northeastern city. That's fine. Sorry, Sally. But I will tell you, I often, when I travel, consider like, what are the other places I would live? You go to Austin. I'm like, yeah. Denver. I'm like, yeah. I would move to Baltimore in a heartbeat because of the people I met there and the way that I see the arts having this underground energy about them. For sure. I think, yeah, and you would fit right in in Baltimore, I feel like. Um, sad weirdos? Total- <laughs> they like sad weirdos down there? Oh, God. I feel like we're all sad weirdos <laughs> down here because, like, <laughs> like, it's like half the time the weather is, like, we get, like, two weeks out of the year combined of, like, suitable weather where we don't have something to bitch about because, like, in the summer not just like it's too fucking hot and it's like way too humid. And I guess that's probably because swamp stuff when the city was first founded, it was probably like near swamps or whatever, but it's so humid. Like you think it's awful. And then in the winter it's cold. And like, if there's a wind and it's just, we're like, the weather's never like, maybe we're just picky, but the weather's never like great. And then, you know, we got the Orioles who, you know, like, at least for people of my generation, they always sucked. And then we had three good years and we were happy. And now we're just <laughs> stuck with, like, trash again. And I think my, I think the generation before me still is traumatized by the Colts leaving. And, <laughs> like, and everyone, everyone else in the country just looks at Baltimore and they're just, oh, yeah, that place exists. Like, one of having listened to your uh, pork roll egg and cheese comedy special Taylor ham egg uh, and cheese thank you <laughs> I see what you tried to do there you Baltimorean that's the Philly that's the Philly influence rubbing off I have a new album it's all New Jersey jokes it's called Taylor ham egg and cheese listen on Spotify today it's fantastic it's fantastic thank you you get but, it um, I really appreciate speaking of Philly I really appreciated the Baltimore shout out when you're like talking shit on Philly because it's true. People forget between Philly and DC is that we exist. And I've actually never said this. I don't think I've ever said this on fuck New York. Uh, sorry, Sally, but I say it all the time about DC. I hate DC. I cannot (laughs) stand DC. And that I lived there for a year one of like the one and a half years of my life where I one and a quarter years of my life where I wasn't like living in Baltimore it was in DC. And granted, disclaimer, it was my freshman year of college and I was extremely depressed and not ready for to be like on my own at eighteen years old. 
and I've barely left my campus. But still, even going back, like I was sat there like a couple weeks ago for a basketball game, and I was in the city, and I was just like, there's no personality here. The personality is a robot. That's, that's all it is. It's just like transplants from other places in the country, and I'm probably like, I don't know if there's a lot of DC people in that Facebook group, but they're going to be piling on me right now, I guess. But like, it just feels, there's something about DC that just kind of feels like, it feels like a party where like, there's one person. Like I imagine it's like the city version of a party thrown by like a less fabulous Jay Gatsby, where it's like, <laughs> there's this dude that knows a lot of people and everyone comes to his house, but they don't really know each other. And they're just kind of like, okay, so like we're all here. You seem cool enough. We're going to hang out. We're going to, we're going to have some food and we're going to do these things and we'll look at art and we'll look at these cool buildings but we're not really going to create like our own party vibe. We're just sort of going to keep doing our thing, you know? Well, I'll say DC, DC has been very nice to me over the years. People show up for my shows there and uh, I, I do like it, but I, I will say, I think it reminds me of Los Angeles in a certain way in that it's dominated by a certain industry. LA, it's entertainment and DC, it's politics. And I feel like if you are not in tune yeah. with those things in both cities, it's like if you're not in tune with it, it's kind of indecipherable. And if you are, it's filled with a lot of pressure. And I know what you mean. And can I say one more thing about Baltimore? Because I don't know if you want to talk about that whole time. So I want to check in with you. But I will say, historically, it's one of the most interesting places in America because Maryland itself was founded as a haven for Catholics when Catholics were a persecuted group. That's fascinating. It's always had this feeling of like, is it part of the South or is it part of the North? And then in the Civil War, I feel like it was a hub for the slave trade, but it was also a place where there were major moral stands against the slave trade. It's a really fascinating city that deserves more credit. And I'm glad that you've talked about it so much today. Do you want to check in? Is that all you wanted to talk about? Because you'll be shocked because I feel like this conversation has been fascinating. We're 22 minutes into this bad boy. Honestly, it's only 22 minutes. I felt like we were way further into it. Um, but, um, I, uh, maybe it's just because I feel like I've been talking nonstop like a fucking crazy person. Nah, you're doing um, great. Very engaging and listenable and don't be self-conscious because I promise you there's a lot of people, I feel like, in the States, let alone the international listeners who are going, oh, that city sounds like it's got way more to it than I knew. And it's true. Great town. Great town that deserves a lot of love and support. Yeah. And we have like, look, 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 we don't need to talk about Baltimore the whole time. I'm, not <laughs> I'm happy to. to. Like the Baltimore tourism uh, campaign. But like, there's just like a lot of weird, small shit that happened. Or like, yeah, like that like historically happened in Baltimore. Like Edgar Allan Poe. Well, people oh, yeah. obviously associate him with it houses here, there's graves here, like that's a smaller thing. But then, you know, Zelda Fitzgerald was in Maryland's premier mental institution, Shepherd Pratt. Like and Premier. I like that you say it like that. Premier. <laughs> premier mental institution. <laughs> premier. We gotta pause there because I gotta give credit where it's due. This is clearly a poet, a true wordsmith, the premier 
mental institution. Not the most notorious, not the most infamous, the premier. Hey, I've broken up the momentum. Let's do some ads. We'll be right back. Thanks to everybody who advertises on the show and helps it exist. Now let's get back to the phone call. Maryland's premier mental institution, Shepard Pratt. And premier. I like that you say it like that. Premier. <laughs> premier mental institution. <laughs> premier. Like, if you listen, if you're looking at like mental institutions across the place and you're trying to figure out which one is the one you want to go to, <laughs> Shepard Pratt is your premier <laughs> mental institution for your go-to inpatient needs. Nice. I'll remember um, that next time I have a complete nervous breakdown, which happens roughly every five to seven years for me. No, no, we got to break the streak. Yeah, I have. I've been doing good, actually. It's been a long time. It's been uh, coming up on eight years since I've had a total collapse in my life. That's good. That's the longest stretch for me. I mean, but you know, it is, I will say, it's reassuring for me to hear that it, it, you can go like stretches where like you don't have one, then it happens, and you can still be a successful human being. Um, marginally, just, marginally successful, stuff. let's be honest. But thank you. Listen, Chris, <laughs> Chris, I feel like from my my perspective, my idea of like what I want in life is to wake up every day and get to do something that I want to do and be able to support myself and plan of having any sort of family, support my family with what I love to do. I'm lucky. And, I'm lucky. I kid, but I know how lucky I am. That you get to do. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so it's like, yeah, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. You know, Leo DiCaprio, but like... <laughs> You're like, you've got a really good life. I have a great oh, life. You've got a wonderful life. I have like, a great life. I know it. I'm just filled with a lifelong yeah. existential dread. And you know as well, you, you are an actor and a poet. When you are an artist, I feel yeah. like you always have this feeling that you will eventually accomplish something that will quell your demons. And that's just not true. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. The older I get, the more I realize no accomplishment is going to make me a more sane and less troubled person. That's not how life works. That's the danger of careerism. But I have to do a lot of soul yeah. searching to find that peace. And that's not always an easy process. Yeah. No, totally. Like, I just started doing poetry, like, I guess, like, two years ago because I wrote songs for a long time and I hadn't written a song like over a year and then last night I did so that, it's weird but um, anyway so I wrote songs for a long time then I had to get two full time credits for like a for, like my scholarship at the college I was at and so I took an undergrad like I took like a introductory like creative writing poetry class and then like it just sort of spun from there and like last and so like i fell in love with it like super hard super quick um and i was just so and like i got an understanding of the world and like how it works and like applying to places and not hearing back for six months and sometimes within those six months the poems you submitted you realize are utter shit but i was really surprised i got really lucky and got like a poem in like a pretty legitimate lit mag and I was really surprised by how quickly like that rush, that dopamine rush of knowing that it got accepted just faded. It lasted maybe like one day. And then the next yeah. day I was like, okay, well, I'll see that in October, I guess. 
And then you're um, chasing that adrenaline again. You're praying that it goes as well yeah. so you can feel that kick again. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it's it's an addictive thing that's also at times very confusing. Yeah. Well, and it's like, well, and in a way, it's obviously like, I mean, everything in life forces you to grow and learn. And I feel like with this, I've sort of had to learn like how to, like it really forces me just to appreciate what I do and value what I do for myself outside of the, because even like though it is poetry and acting, like you're sort of like depending on external validation in order for your work to be seen. What really matters is myself validating it even after that external validation. So like when the poem came out in October and like I got the copy of the magazine, like I read it and I was like, yeah, that is a good poem. I'm proud of that. So it's forced, it's really forced me to be like, even though I'm dependent on external validation for my career, to like not make that as the number one priority, but like uh, arbiter of whether or not anything I do is worth a damn. And if you are worth it, that's the thing. You can, that, you can ponder okay. if what you do yeah. is worth a damn, but yeah. that does not equate to whether or not you are worth a damn. And that's a mistake I've fallen into over and over again in my 39 years of life. And cheers to that. I feel that. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. But, um, oh, real quick. I just, I have a friend that listens to this podcast, and I know that <laughs> And I would just like to share a quick story with you of how last August she texted me and she said, hey, I've got a ticket to Gethard's show in Asbury Park next Friday, this Friday. She said this Friday. It's important detail. And she was like, do you want to come? And it was Thursday. And I was like, "Ah, well, like I could. Yeah. And so. I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's be, let's be spontaneous. And I called out at work. I switched a shift around. The next day I drove like the three hours on the Jersey Turnpike, drove up to Asbury Park. I parked and I texted her. I was like, hey, uh, just so you know, um, I'm going to have the, the quick bite of eat and I'll meet you at the, the brewery. And she texted me back and she was like, you're kidding, right? Oh, fuck. I just said my name. That's okay. We'll mark the time code and we will bleep it. We will bleep it. That's okay. Uh, Who cares? No. God, I'm a failure. (laughs) Um, But, and she was like, you're kidding. And I was like, no, I'm very serious. And she was like, the show's next Friday. Um, And I was I was like, you said this Friday. And she was like, no, I didn't. And I was like, I sent her a screenshot of the text. And she was like, oh, I did. <laughs> um, but um, we've joked about it since then. And we, and we said that if either of us ever got on, we would have to share that story with you. Now, did you uh, come back the next Friday for the show? I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> and was that the taping of Taylor Ham, Egg, and Cheese? Was that was that it? Because it was like end of August at uh, brewing. Yeah, I mean, I did. I forget what the timing was, but I did a stop on my tour at Asbury Park. But I think yeah, I did two sets of shows at the brewery. I think that was the taping of Taylor Ham and Cheese, my entire joke of New Jersey albums, which you can listen to on Spotify right now. 
It's very good. <laughs> Thank you so uh, much. Well, I'm so sorry. So yeah. what, you just wandered around Asbury Park by yourself? Which is, that's not a bad day. If you gotta have that day, at least you're in a town that's become like this revitalized, cool place that still has a, its abandoned, gritty edges. Yeah, no, like, I was, I was considering it, um, wandering around, because also, like, I was pretty much, like, I was born and raised on, like, Bruce, so I was like, oh, Asbury Park, that's a pretty big place, but I ended up not just because I was like, where am I staying tonight? Am I driving all the way back to Baltimore? I was like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have that mental fortitude right now. <laughs> um, cause, I don't know. It was one of those things I was like, I drove this far. I need to like do something with this, with my geographic location. Um, what is that, I like a three-hour trip? It, it was like three. I think there. I think if I remember correctly, something happened on the turnpike. It was like three and a half. Um, but I ended up just. My sister lives in Philly, so I ended up driving another hour and a half to see her and stay with her, which was nice because she's a globe trotting person. So um, ever since she moved to college, I hadn't really seen her all that much. So any chance to see her is a, a good chance. That's um, cool. That's cool. Yeah. But I just wanted to publicly shame uh, my friend. I'll just send a message out there to your friend, which says, uh, hey, you got to be more clear with your text. People have busy lives. People are losing money on this. Also, thank you for buying tickets and supporting me and my comedy. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's she's great. She loves you very much. And I love her, uh, even though I have no idea who she is. Well, you've talked to her once upon a time. It just wasn't on, like, a, a big thing. Okay. But, um yeah. Anyway, I feel like you're always asking people what. Oh, never mind. Actually, how are you feeling about the? Are you still a Knicks fan? Man, I haven't watched the Knicks game all year. It's depressing. But what I have done over the past probably five or six years, I've reignited my love for the team I grew up loving as a youth, the Seton Hall Pirates of the Big East Conference. And they're on a streak. They just won their ninth game in a row last night. They took down Providence. They're undefeated in the Big East. This is a magical season. Oh, yeah. Miles Powell is a once-in-a-generation player, and I'm going to someday say I was lucky enough to see him play live. Dude, he is filthy. Like Ridiculous. Yeah, no, he is so good. Miles Powell um, will hit a shot from half court and not even think about it. He'll put a dagger in your heart. And I'm hoping they go on a run in the NCAA tournament this year. That being said, the last thing listeners of this podcast want to hear about is me ranting about college sports. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just wanted I just want to check in on how you're feeling about the Knicks because it's a rough time. Up Knicks in are brutal. Knicks are brutal and unwatchable yeah. and have been for years, and uh, pretty much since Linsanity an unwatchable team and I tried I tried to hang on for years after that but I can't and yeah. their owner their owner seems like he's almost intentionally ruined the team and they go out this year they got all this money for free agents and they go and get like four power forwards who thought that was gonna work I don't know I don't know I don't know I kind of want to see Taj Gibson run the point but my, my <laughs> oh, here's a question if James Dolan if James Dolan came to you and was like hey Chris uh, I really want you to. I'm going on tour with my jazz band. JD and, and the short really shot. JD and the short shot. And uh -huh. I really want you to be the opener. Yeah. Uh, what are you saying? Are you going on tour, trying to talk some sense to him, to him, trying to get angling, maybe become like an assistant GM gig out of it? Because that's <laughs> probably how he hires. 
Well, first things first, let us explain. <laughs> I love this. You and I clearly, uh, clearly are cut from the same cloth in many, many ways. <laughs> For anybody listening, the owner of the Knicks is a guy named James Dolan. He's kind of a legendary figure. He inherited the team from his dad. He has been, I think the diplomatic way of saying it is he has been at the very least pretty obtuse in his running of the team. Things There's been scandals with GMs he's hired. There's been disaster, like Isaiah Thomas scandals, and then just kind of disastrous yeah. relationships with players during the Phil Jackson era. He can't hang on to coaches. And it's gotten to a point where the top-level players are now going on record and saying, why would, everybody thinks that players want to play in New York because it's the media capital and Madison Square Garden is admittedly magical. Why would anyone play for an organization this backwards? And I feel like every... He turned the organization into a, a trash can that is like so trashy yeah. and so smelly that it's just, it's, it's abominable. No one it will even go near it to empty it. And what you're referring to is a thing that I love... He has a band called JD and the Shore Shot, James Dolan and the Shore Shot. And he's really into this band. This guy's like a billionaire who owns Madison Square Garden. And he and all like and so many like arenas and shit. Yeah. yeah. And like just so much money. And word on the street, and I, I don't know if this is true or an urban legend. It would be very easy to look up, is that there are times where he has allowed bands to play at Madison Square Garden under the condition that they allow JD and the Straight Shot to open for them. I guess it's not Short Shot. JD and the Straight Shot, we looked it up. It's JD and the Straight Shot. But uh, I forget, uh, JD, I, I feel like that's the rumor I've always heard is that they have played as openers for like, I'm looking this up now, of like major acts. Because he owns the arena. Yeah, billionaire like, billionaire books himself to open. Let's see. Here's the here's the article from Stereo Gum. Billionaire owner books himself to open for the Eagles at MSG. He owns the arena. He's, I don't blame that though. Come that's on. A, that's a smart flag. No, listen, listen. If <laughs> say like if I owned an arena. And I had a chance to then open up for Bruce Springsteen. Like, I would, yeah, I would do that. I'd be like, I've worked my life to get, well, maybe, I don't know if he worked, it was, it was his dad's businesses and everything. But from my perspective, it's like, this is my place. If I have a chance to open up for Bruce Springsteen because of this thing, hell yeah. Like, I get it, but when you already when you already have the reputation of being like the most hated man in New York sports fandom, and he will like <laughs> he'll show up at games and fans will heckle him and he'll instantly turn around and point at them in security and and will say ban that person for life. Like he he is known to have caused some trouble with this franchise people love, and then when people. Well, yell stuff. He has a thin skin about it. So that's also you're right. Like if I owned MSG, I'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a comedy set and open up for Billy Joel at one of these crazy sold out concerts. Billy Joel does there, of course. But it's 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 he's already viewed as such a spoiled rich kid who's like broken everybody's yeah. hearts. So it's not easy to swallow. Although I get your point. I get your point. I would I would pay money 
to like like I'm not a big Bill Joel person, but I would pay good money just to watch you perform just a set of like existential depression jokes to an unknowing crowd of people there to see Billy Joel. Oh, I would the dream. For that. I mean, if I could go up, if I could open for Bruce Springsteen and do some of my jokes from Taylor Ham, Egg and Cheese available on Spotify now. It, like if I could do my Very what's good. the deal with Bayonne, New Jersey joke opening for Bruce, I feel like I'd actually get a standing ovation. That would be an amazing joke. Oh, come true. absolutely. Absolutely. Just, would. It, I uh, just went to JD and the Straight Shots Wikipedia, and you'll be happy to hear that the New York Times described the band as a group of well known sidemen backing a karaoke grade singer. That is the man who booked himself to open for the Eagles. Ma. What a Ma. Move. beautiful poetry. There it is. Write that down. You'll get it published. Uh, but um, my question for you as a New Jerseyan, yeah. Springsteen versus Bon Jovi. Oh, Springsteen. And I got nothing against yeah, Bon Jovi. That's the right that's, Springsteen's yeah, just that's got That's the right answer. Springsteen's there funny for my generation there. because for kids my age, that was our parents' music. I don't feel like too many of my friends grew up loving Springsteen, but there was a very brief stretch where I lived in L.A. in 2003, 2004. Um, and I got so into Springsteen out of nostalgia for my home. And you realize this guy's lyrics are untouchable, absolutely untouchable. And they tell stories about people I know and I grew up with. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he wrote Thunder Road when he was 24. That's what the nuts. fuck is up with that? That's I'm 24 n- right now. I'm like, what the, what am I doing? Yeah. You got to go right here. Taking down the loading dock. And that came after Born uh, to Run, right? Yeah. Yeah, because like, he wrote it like around the time that he was writing. He wrote the, most, the majority of it when he was writing Wild the Innocent. But it like, wasn't quite right. But he wrote pretty much all of the lyrics. He just hadn't figured out the music for it yet. So like, he wrote the line where it's like, um, I can't remember it anymore. This is embarrassing. But it's like, we're not young anymore. And, like, he's always talked about, I wrote that I was 24. What did I know about that? Yeah. But, um. Because we're not young anymore. Sure, little uh, faith is promising the night. She ain't a beauty, but she, she's all right. All right. And that's all right with me. Ding. Great song. Let's hit the pause button. Been a long time since I've belted out singing on the show. An old tradition returns, me singing with my very poor singing voice. I hope you enjoyed that. More fun to come when we return. Check out the ads. Thank you to all of our advertisers. Now let's finish off this phone call and take some real twists and turns you won't see coming. She ain't a beauty, but she's all right. And that's yeah. all right with me. Ding. Great song. Oh, yeah. This episode well, is well, straight up chit chat, and I loved it. This episode is straight up two dudes from the East Coast chatting. It is. Do we? I feel like is there like um, a requirement to talk about like a certain level of angst? Is there <laughs> a percent like a? Is there like a? Like a litmus test for like you'll like if like a stick in the audio file off and be like, hmm, there's only a two percent angst in this. No, I mean, 
I love that it goes in so many different directions. And I feel like um, this harkens back to the early days of the show, I feel like, where it was like, let's just bounce from thing to thing and see what we stumble into. And we'll talk about a lot of Baltimore stuff. And then we'll talk about sports and Springsteen. And then I'm sure we got 16, 17 minutes left. We've got time to stumble into all other sorts of stuff. I do want to know more about you. You you mentioned you're moving. You mentioned you had all this great love for your your hometown, but where are you moving to and why? So like I really don't know yet. Um it I'm applying to I'm currently waiting to hear back from graduate schools for poetry. Ooh. Um Yeah. Ooh, yeah, it's fucking scary. But I applied to eight places. I applied to Michigan, Mississippi, Boston, NYU, UVA, Virginia Tech, Washington University in St. Louis, and University of Texas. And all of them are really competitive and really good. And there's a very good chance I get into none of them. But I also feel like there's a chance I get into one of them. Um, but if I don't get into any of them, I'm probably going to move to New York just because no people there. That's where the action is. And I don't know. I love the city from every time I've been there. And I feel like it's the place where, like, I feel like in the past couple months I've really realized that I just need to get out there and just, like, one of my, I'm not a big New Year's resolutions person, but I want this year to be more like self-generative with performance opportunities because so much of acting is just waiting for people to cast you. But I have an idea for like a solo show. I want to try and do this part music, part poetry reading, and part storytelling. I don't know if I'm really funny enough for like to call it comedy, but like hopefully it would also be funny. So I want to try and like get that going after the show that I'm in right now closes and, you know, get that going. And I feel like New York is just a place where like people do their shit. And like, I remember I listened to Billy Eichner on a podcast. I think it was on like Mark Maron's podcast, but he talked about how like he and Lynn Mammal Miranda, like were doing like, they like would go to like the same open mic. Um, and like Billy, I can be doing like very early, like Billy on the street type of stuff. And then when Manuel Miranda would be like, I think this is like when he was like writing in the Heights stuff. And it's just crazy to me. That's just Billy Eichner and Manuel. And it was really, I don't know. I love it. It's just, those are two people who are like, I have these things that I want to do and I'm going to do them. I'm going to take them places and just build it. And I feel like that's where New York why New York appeals to me if I don't get in anywhere. Well, I'll tell you, if you're in your mid-20s and you're ready to fight for it and you have a chip on your shoulder, New York is the place to go because it will beat you down and it will thicken your skin. But when you do meet with any, any level of enthusiasm or success there, it feels like such a victory. And I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I know about people from Baltimore is that they can take a punch and they can throw a punch. And you need to be able to do both to survive in this city as an artist. And this city has broken me. 15 years living here and I'm out. I can't do it anymore, but it's for the young. I moved here when I was 24. You got to be ready to put in yeah. the years. 
And you're right. I remember, I was around for that era. I remember Billy doing shows at UCB where he started the Billy on the Street stuff. It was a, it was a video thing he did as part of a bigger variety show. And then Lin-Manuel yeah, Miranda, when I was back in the improv scene heavy, he was a uh, freestyle love supreme was like this fringe thing on the improv scene. There was this guy named Shockwave who was their beatboxer and he used to kind of come around and he was their bridge to the improv scene at large. But I'm not going to lie. There was, I, I did not prescribe to this, but there was a lot of people that were like, who are these freestyle rap guys doing it? And it's like, oh, here's who they are. They have a Broadway show 15 years later. What are you doing? They fought harder than all of us. That's what they're yeah. doing. Because like, yeah, I mean, like the weird, the stuff that people look at are like, oh, that's weird. I feel like generally people just use the word weird to, it's one word to summarize just saying, I don't understand. Yeah. And frankly, it's not necessarily about being understood, especially with art. People love with poems to be like, what's this about? And it's like, it doesn't really matter what it's about. It's matter because it isn't about like the men, like a intellectual thing all the time. It's more so just about like a, that part of you inside that is touched by like art and like moved in some way, whether it's like in a funny way or a serious way. Like, anyway. I'm with you. We I'm a think the same way. Because, like you said, I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio, and I am low on the entertainment totem pole, but I'm proud of what I did. And uh, I'll tell you what, like the probably the most success I've had was an HBO special where I talked about killing, trying to kill myself for 85 minutes. And that's not going to work for everybody. But when I meet the people who my stuff has worked for, I can tell that. I, I, I know how much it means to me and I can tell it's meant something to them and I wouldn't mm -hmm. trade it. I wouldn't trade it for more mainstream success and more job security. I wouldn't trade it. On my, on my worst days, I wonder if I've made all the wrong choices to be this many years yeah. in and not feel like I'm going to have a job in two years. But I wouldn't trade it. Not, not for the world. That makes me happy. And because it's like, I feel pretty confident in saying this, that the people that like love you and love your art, love you and your art a lot harder than the people that love Leo DiCaprio's art the most, if that makes sense. Well, I'd rather like, make something that almost no one likes, but a small group of people love. That feels to me more fulfilling. And no offense to the people who make shows like this. They do what they do very well, and I have an immense respect for it. But I'd rather do that than like write for like a sitcom with a laugh track like they just I'd yeah. just rather do that and I feel like that's what's gonna happen with your poems man that's what's gonna happen with your songs that's what's gonna happen I hope. they're gonna click I with hope. some people I mean, and those people are gonna be your lifeline to keep going and you're gonna throw I your hope. goddamn punches cause you're from Baltimore baby yeah I am but like I hope so, because that's something to think about. That's, like, what's most frightening, I think, about, like, this, like, solo performance thing. Because, you know, it's gonna, it, essentially, like, the concept is sort of, like, the, a parallel, like, I don't know. Like, I'm past, first of all, career suicide means a lot to me. Just that, like, I came through it after I dealt with all my shit, or, like, a lot of my shit. And it's just sort of, like, nice. Happy to help. Seen. Glad you but, got something um, out of it. I feel like I've traded the one existential crisis of, like, 
I don't want to live to, for like the existential crisis of the world dying. Um, yeah. I might not have it. For and so I want, I want to kind of like tie that, but also like, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about like how people who are born with a dick are raised um, in terms of like how to obviously like how to be in general, like it's like the masculinity and everything with that. It's like a mess, but especially like, how we're raised to be sexually and like what we expect, how we should expect ourselves to be like, whether we expect ourselves to be hypersexual and like dominant. And like, for me, that's had like a real negative impact. And like, I've had to, it's a continuing journey of, you know, recognizing that I am who I am. And that isn't this like picture perfect definition of or like, of like what a man is or like, and you know, I don't, I don't identify as a man, but I don't really identify as anything. Just identifies an octopus, jokingly, but somehow, like that joke feels more accurate than any other word I could use. Well, this is taking a fascinating turn with eight minutes left. Listen, listen, you gotta, you got. Sometimes you just gotta hit the hit the swerve, you know. You gotta spend ten minutes on J- James Dolan's band to break the ice before we get into the fact that you identify as an octopus more than you do as a man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And I I don't, just to be clear, like when people ask me like what I identify as, if I joke and we say octopus, I'll then like say like, well, like non-binary. I don't want to, I don't, like, I know some people are like, oh, like say them, ho, ho, ho. Like it's like in theater world, like I said, at first rehearsal, people are going around and it's like kind of like standard practice. Now people go around, they're like, okay, name, role, and the pronoun to use. And there's always one asshole who's like, some like motherfucking like older white man that's like, uh, they them theirs. Just kidding. PMS. And like, I'm not that. I'm so not that. I use like they them that it's like something where I don't care too much about people I don't really know using it because I'm just kind of, I'm a private person. So I generally don't feel the need to be really open about myself with people that I don't know and don't trust. But yeah, so I take it very seriously, and I don't want to sound like with the octopus thing that I'm not, and I'm making a joke out of it. I don't think it, I think it came off as good-humored, but not joking about it. That's good, as you can tell I'm anxious. Anyway, sorry. No, that's okay. No need to apologize for being honest. I'm a very apologetic person, Christopher. So am I. Also, I have to say to loop it back into Baltimore, a city that I've always felt like it's a reputation, which I think you've brought up, where it feels like you got to be a little tough. And that doesn't always fit in with people who aren't interested in traditional masculinity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And again, like I said, I think for me, my I felt that a lot in middle school for sure because that was still like even though it was like a private Catholic school still like in like Baltimore but like then like once you get to high school out in the county that's where it's just sort of the Catholic thing becomes more of a thing and there's a sense of like what's proper what's appropriate but um, yeah no I mean like there was a couple weeks ago where like my um, girlfriend painted her nails and the next day I was like I'm gonna go to the Y for play basketball and I was like well probably it's not like I took the nail polish off, not because I was like, like 
worried about being seen, but it's just sort of like the reality is like, I know if I'm going to go to live with, to play basketball, I have nail polish on odds of having a confrontation are high. And I don't really want a confrontation when I'm playing basketball because that's not what I go there for. So I took them off. But, um, and that sucks. Yeah. That's a bad feeling. Yeah. I mean, I guess like it wasn't like a bad, I don't know. It actually wasn't a bad feeling. Like it was kind of like, it wasn't like I recognized like this isn't great. I felt, Honestly, I felt more ashamed that I was just maybe I'm being a bad, like, queer for, like, not going ready to fight if someone calls me, like, um, uh, like, calls me anything. Um, maybe, maybe that's me being a weak queer, but I don't know. I mean, you can't think like that. I mean, the idea that it's just illustrative of the fact that the world has made massive progress, but you still feel like you can't wear nail polish to the Y without getting called a homophobic name or somebody looking to use it as an excuse to push you on the basketball court. That's not about you being weak. That's about the world being tougher than it still should be. I think next time... But also, then I feel bad because I'm like, well, I'm making assumptions about these people like that like I could be playing basketball with. But, um, you know, so it's like... That's another, it's like multiple practice because it's like maybe I'm the asshole for making assumptions about being called things. Maybe, maybe, but that's, that's what, that's one of the great questions we all face in the world, right? Do you, do you assume the best of people and become pleasantly surprised when that's true? Or do you assume the worst in people, which protects you, but cuts you off from the world? That's a really major question, especially when you're living in a tough city. How do you learn how to trust everybody all the time? Not easy. Yeah, especially as someone who I'm not a trusting person. Next, like, next time, you got to wear that nail polish on the court and then back some fool down in the post, hit a little jump hook over him, and then nobody's going to call Oh, I, can, I, I cannot do I'm Listen, I'm 3 and D. I like, Same here. I play I, from three-point line to three-point line. You'll never see me in the key. Oh, mm-hmm. I go into the key like if it's on a fast break. And also, like, my my role also is if I get the ball, I got to shoot it. Because, like, if I pass it, I'm probably not touching it again for a few minutes. Yeah. And if I have a good look, I got to take it. Shooters like, got to shoot. Shooters got to shoot, baby. <laughs> we play the same. It's funny. Everybody on my team, whenever someone new joins my team, inevitably they'll try the try to pass me the ball while I'm running, and I'll bobble it out of bounds. And then we have to explain to them, no, if I am moving on the court – it's to try to get to a different spot to shoot a three, or I'm trying to set a moving screen to get someone else open. I'm never looking for the <laughs> ball while I'm actually, I cannot have the ball and move at the same time. I get it and I shoot, yeah. or else I'm throwing cheap shots to get somebody else open, maybe. Yeah, just treat me like I'm Kyle Corver. Do not ask me to handle. Yeah, yes. me I am JJ Reddick. I am Kyle Corver. This is who you're dealing with. We're not looking. I'm. I'm not James Harden out here. You're not gonna see no Euro steps. No way. Uh, no. Now, no. fascinating combo. I thank you for it. I want to just loop it back to the beginning with Baltimore. Can I tell you? Are you familiar? One of my favorite stories on Earth, and something that illustrates Baltimore's weirdness. And we'll go an extra minute just to get this out. Do you know about the Poe toaster? I do not educate me. The Poe Toaster. Oh, wait, no, no. Are you talking about the guy that leaves, like, the bottle of cognac? Yes. My favorite thing. I thought you were talking about a literal fucking electrical toaster. <laughs> no. Idiot. Not some type of toaster <laughs> that you can only use in Baltimore. 
This is the thing. I want. (laughs) No. His name is the Potoster. I want everyone listening to Google this. It's one of the strangest stories, I think, out there. And I love a strange story. For many, many decades, literally, someone would show up, I think on Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, they would show Mm -hmm. up dressed as him, go to his grave, and leave a bottle of cognac. And would not speak to anyone. And people started showing up every year to see this. And people would try to trail the guy and he'd shake them. And no one knew who he was. And if I remember right, he was finally in his 90s when he stopped. I believe it went on for like something like 60 years, 70 years. And I think when he, Mm -hmm. maybe when he passed away, his family revealed who he was. But then the tradition stopped, obviously. But from what I'm reading, the tourism board in Baltimore has appointed a new Poe toaster who also remains anonymous. And it's this thing that people gather at the man's grave. Now, that's a weird story, and that strikes me as very much of your region. Very Baltimore. Is that in the the borders of Baltimore? Sorry? And that grave, that's in Baltimore, right? That's not out in the county? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's in Baltimore, like real Baltimore. That's that's a crazy ass thing that I feel like isn't going to happen anywhere else. Some silent yeah, lunatic one, visiting that horror writer's grave. I love it. So crazy. Can I say one more thing to you, real quick? Yes, it's absolutely. Just Can you read the book? Um, it's a book of poetry. It's called The Book of Endings. The book of by Endings by Leslie Harrison. She doesn't use any punctuation in it. Okay, let me um, he's a former professor of mine, and I love her very, very much. And I just wanted to um, spread her work to one person and any other people that might want to read a book of poems. Okay, the book of endings by Leslie Harrison. Leslie Harrison. All right. I'll do my best to check it out, but I'm perpetually tired. But poems move quick. Hey, this was a great conversation. I have loved talking with you. We sound like we have a lot in common. And, uh, I'll tell you what, really fun for me to laugh at a lot of the things you brought up and feel like I was on the same page with another person. What a great way to go, to face the rest of the day. Thank you for it. I'm glad. It was great for me, too. Thank you very much for everything you've done. All right. And your friend needs to step up the text game. Mm-hmm. She does. She does. She does. Caller, thank you. Thank you for, uh, like I said at the end there, every once in a while I get to do this show and I know that I get to walk back out into uh, New York City in January where everyone's cold and not just emotionally cold like they are year-round, also physically cold, which makes the emotional coldness worse. But I now have this conversation in my head and I get to giggle about JD and the straight shot all day. Thank you for that gift. Thank you to everybody who helps with the show, including Jared O'Connell, Anita Flores, and Kristen's. Thank you, Shell Shag, for the music. You want to know more about me? ChrisGeth.com. Sometimes I'm out on the road to find out about it there. Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. It really helps when you do. Next time on Beautiful Anonymous, a politically progressive identical twin tells us a lot about golf. Are you identical twins? 
We're identical, yeah. I don't think we've ever had a teacher that could tell us apart because we always had the same teachers. Yeah. And so I, I used to take her history test and she used to take my math test. Yes. And Ooh. then... If I had an identical twin who could have taken my math tests, my life would have been yeah. so much better. That's amazing. And you never got caught? No, we never got caught. But then one time... I remember I got her a better grade than myself, and so I stopped doing it. I said, I'm done. You got a better grade than me. The competitive side of you couldn't handle that you got a higher score than yourself. That's next time on Beautiful Anonymous.